Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ray Dalio. He's the founder of Bridgewater Associates, a billionaire investor, philanthropist, and an author. The New World Order is a mystical term. Is it a shadowy cabal of evil hooded figures? Or is it a cycle that our world's economy regularly runs on? Ray is here to explain the consequences of shifting global power dynamics and what that means for the future of America and the rest of the world. Expect to learn why global events aren't getting more chaotic, they're unfolding right on schedule, why there is a regular cycle of empires falling and new ones emerging, how the global economic machine really works, what the next few years of America will look like, what you can do to secure your finances in a turbulent market, raise opinion on the role that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies will serve in a post-dollar economy, the best financial advice for young people, and much more. Tickets are now available for my UK and Ireland tour, Dublin, Thursday the 16th of November, Manchester, Friday the 17th of November, and London, Saturday the 18th of November. Go and get yours at chriswilliamson.live. I absolutely cannot wait for this. I don't want it to be six months away. I want it to be tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. Go and get your tickets. They're very limited. The shows are incredibly intimate. This is the first run that I'm ever doing. Next year, we'll be doing more shows, but this is the first one. And you can say that you were there at the first ever live show, chriswilliamson.live. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ray Dalio. Two years ago, you made some predictions about the future for America and the global economy. How accurate do you think you've been? Uncomfortably accurate, given the whole picture, you know. Um, it's like watching the movie <laughs> for over and over again. Um, maybe I should explain. Uh, <clears throat> for about 55 years, I've been a global macro investor, and I learned that Many of the things that surprised me never happened in my lifetime before. So when I would see certain things happen that were like that, I would go back in history and study uh, prior periods. Uh, studying, for example, the Great Depression allowed us to anticipate the financial crisis in 2008. Anyway, there are three big things that I observed happening uh, that didn't happen in our lifetimes, but happened during the 1930 to 45 period. And they are the creation of enormous amounts of debt and the printing of money to pay for those debts and it having its economic effects on inflation and growth. The second is internal conflicts um, over the largest wealth gaps we had since then, uh, values gaps, um, and the rise of populism of the right and the left. Um, those conflicts, again, largest since that 1930-45 period. And then <clears throat> the rise of a great power, uh, producing a great powers conflict internationally, um, with the rise of China as a great power, uh, challenging the United States and uh, with Russia. So the great power conflict, that also is the uh, most that that's happened since the, the Great Depression. 
So because those three things <clears throat> are happening now, and um, I didn't study them, um, I went back and I needed to study the cycles, these, what's happened over longer periods of time. So I studied <clears throat> the last 500 years because these big cycles uh, take about 75 years, uh, give or take about 50. So, um, and, um, you know, like the rise and decline of the British Empire, the rise and decline of the debt. And that dynamic I shared um, in the book, and I also shared it in an animated video, uh, which is called The Changing World Order. Um, and that creates a, a path. Now, it's not just because they repeat in this way, but one can see the cause-effect relationships that are happening. And um, so that has pretty much transpired according to script. We can get into those pieces, but I'd say those are the three main ones. There were two others that um, had big effect that I paid more attention to um, that I'll mention. One was um, acts of nature in the form of droughts, floods, and pandemics. Uh, they were very disruptive when they happened, killed more people and uh, toppled more empires than, or orders than others. And then also, of course, over a period of time, there's learning and producing new technologies that raises living standards. You know, it's raised per capita income, life expectancy, and so on. So. But those five flat factors transpire um, in ways that we've seen before to create this big cycle. And it's uh, if we can look at the cause-effect relationships, um, that's what I want to pass along because I'm 74 years old and I'm in a phase in my life that I want to pass along the things that are of value. And I think this is an important thing. But yes, it's transpiring according to script. Cassandra, yet again, unfortunately. What do you think is the likelihood of the meltdown of the dollar? Is America going to be wiped out at some point soon? I I, I don't want um, histrionics, you know, just I, I don't want to um, overdo it. And I also don't want to just jump to conclusions. My goal here is to show people how the machine works, the cause-effect relationship. So I'm going to answer your question by explaining certain things. Um, the dollar is, um, is held by countries in the form of debt. In other words, when you say I'm holding the dollar, um, you're holding a debt instrument. And when we have a, a problem with the debt instrument, a few problems with it, holding the debt instruments, um, those problems are that, first of all, as a result of what the United States was in the world, the largest trading country, um, the dominant empire, and so on, there's been a, a huge um, accumulation of dollar-denominated debt and dollars, therefore. And there's also been um, a lot of deficits that had to be funded, which happens by selling dollar-denominated debt, which a lot of foreigners and banks and others bought. And so they have a lot of dollar-denominated debt. Now, um, if you're a creditor, meaning an owner of dollar-denominated debt, you need to have an interest rate that is high enough to, to more than compensate you for inflation, 
And so um, the production now of a lot more debt and, and them having a lot of debt, and then also sanctions internationally, which means freezing dollar-denominated debt, all have <clears throat> created a reduction in the demand for dollar-denominated debt. There's also, you know, concerns in the world about some of the things that are going on in the United States, and that's reduced the, that. As a result of that, um, you're seeing more transactions take place in other currencies. Um, and if they trade take place in other currencies, then um, others want to save in those other currencies um, because that's how they pay for it. So if you want to save in what you pay for, you save more in it and less in dollars. And so that's the dynamic that is reducing the demand for dollars and dollar de debt at the same time as the supply of it keeps coming because we have large deficits. So the underlying value that those dollars uh, represent isn't increasing, but the number of dollars spread across that is. Yeah, so that there's a supply-demand issue. That supply-demand issue, by the way, also exists in European currencies. Okay, they have too much debt and they're financed the same way and Japanese currencies. And so what you're seeing is the movement, all that weight of money and debt is causing prices to go up, inflation. And that's also being uh, worsened um, by the supply chain deteriorations that are due to the international conflict. So, for example, um, in the case of, let's say, China and the United States um, and other countries, as they prepare for the possibility of war, they want to be self-sufficient. And so, um, uh, as a result, they work on being self-sufficient more than integrated and efficient. And so um, that dynamic is playing an important role too. What do you think the next few years have got in store for us? Um, well, um, I'm going to take all three of those influences and answer it because they're all related. <clears throat> the, um, there's a, a business cycle or a short-term debt cycle, I call it, um, that, you know, sort of recession to recession. And the way it works is you have a recession and weak economy, central banks um, stimulate credit growth credit gives you buying power. You go out and buy, the economy picks up, um, and then that continues until you start to have inflation. Then they tighten monetary policy, and then, it, uh, and then the economy weakens and it goes into the next recession. Since 1945, when the new world order began, in other words, we had the currency and also the American world order beginning in that, We've had 12 and a half of those cycles. We are, they typically last about seven years, give or take about three. And so we are now about halfway through this cycle in which they, um, you know, you, they did the stimulation, inflation rises, they tighten monetary policy. And we're in the phase of the cycle where there's going to be then 
the cracks occurring and the negative um, impact on economic activity and the like. And it's going to be more difficult than normal because there's so much debt outstanding and we're, you know, what we just talked about. So that is likely um, to happen over, let's say, the next year and year and a half, which means that it will take us in through the elections. And what we have is a situation where the second of those influences, the internal conflict influence, is bad, and you have a lot of populism. So populists are people who will fight to win at all cost. They're not compromisers. You know, I will fight and I will win for you, and the rules be damned, you know, compromising be damned. And um, so you're going to have a, a political situation in terms of, you know, that kind of environment. It's a bad time for that, but it'll end up being uh, an impact on the, um, on the nature of the elections, I think. And then you have um, the international conflict. We are much closer to um, a big conflict, a war of, of sorts, either a sanctions and economic war or even possibly a military war with China. And because of the politics also, that that will be pushing its limits too, because there are um, the one thing that most Americans are united on, and both Democrats and Republicans are united on, is anti-China. And um, as a result, um, you, you know, and they all want a strong man or woman, strong person uh, on that. And so I think you're going to see pushing of the limits there, and that becomes a dangerous set of circumstances. So I think that um, if we take the next, uh, you know, let's call it one, two, three years, I think that those are going to be uh, riskier years. I spoke to an evolutionary psychologist and an evolutionary anthropologist a little while ago on the show, and they were teaching me about the values and the type of characteristics that ancestral tribes would have preferred in leaders at different states. And in times of warfare, more dominant leaders were the ones that were preferred. In times of peace, more prestigious leaders were the ones that were preferred. Makes complete sense. If you yeah. are facing a, a scary tribe from the other valley, you want someone that's going to stand firm and is going to not take any shit and they're going to go for it. When in times of peace, that person becomes a bit tyrannical. It's a little bit too much energy when there's not anybody else to fight. And it's so funny how you see this just same dynamic. To me, it seems play out no matter how big the populations get, it's essentially the same physics. That's right. It's, it, it's happened repeatedly. If you're, if you're in a war, what you want is um, the commander and everybody, you know, to goddamn follow the instructions and just do what you're told. And, you know, it's not like we're going to sit there and uh, argue, debate, and, and so on. So what you see is the breakdowns, and particularly you see the breakdowns in um, also when they're at odds, there's a lot more to argue about, um, like now the populace of the left and the populace of the right. And so in the 1930s, you saw four democracies become dictatorships, uh, choose to become dictatorships. They had parliaments, 
that chose to become dictatorships. Germany, Italy, Spain, and Japan chose that because in order to fight, you know, that, that's what you need. And that your anthropologist friends are um, right on that. Yeah, they're consolidating power in an attempt to try and be able to enact more change more easily. It's not, we haven't got time. We haven't got time to get this across the line diplomatically. We haven't got time to get everybody on the same page. We'll have one person who knows what they're doing and they'll push it forward. One, one thing that I... And another thing that's common is um, the foreign enemy. When you have um, a situation where you have internal dispute, mm. um, it's very, very common to try to bring the country together, get support by the leader by having the common enemy, you know? And so we'll all rally around, you know, the leader and you could see, you know, it was like, um, you know, when 9-11 happened and, you know, the president, uh, um, you know, Bush gets a standing ovation and we're all behind you in that fight. And so that's, yeah, that's timeless and universal dynamic. If you can't bond yourselves together over shared love of an in-group, shared hatred of an out-group is a close enough proxy, I suppose, for that interim. Was yeah. there anything um, over the last two years that you didn't anticipate, or is there anything particularly unique about the situation that we're in now? Every what is it? Uh, every time people say it's going to be different this time, is there anything that could make things different this time, or was there, any, there anything that you've been surprised by? Um. You know, by and large, I haven't been surprised by, I mean, I didn't anticipate that we were going to have the war with Russia. Um, so that, um, but I did anticipate that we were likely, you know, headed in a war-like environment. It's very much fell with, um, as expected there. Um, the economic and the financial very much is the same. Um, so I'd have to, uh, uh, you know, by, by and large, almost exactly it's transpired the way described. And that's why, again, look, I, I, I did the video for free on YouTube, um, the changing world order. Um, what I'm trying to do is to just pass it along for people's consideration to understand the cause effect relationship that goes there. But yes, it's, unfortunately going according to script that doesn't mean it's destined okay but it's difficult to take off track um what do i mean by that um each stage is the the logical consequence of the stage that preceded it so let's take the existing situation the united states has a lot of debt and it has deficits. So it has to sell debt. Now, if you say, <clears throat> and others are holding debt, and if you say, um, how do you get healthy? Um, you have to spend less than you earn to get to not borrow money and get financially strong. That's difficult. And particularly when you have a lot of debt, because you have to take a portion of your income and you have to pay the debt. And also you're living in spending more than you're earning. And so how do you rectify that? What? Cut spending? 
I mean, it's very difficult to cut spending or raise income. Well, that's not easy. So raise, cut spending. Um, what do you cut? Okay. So we're living in a world now where um, policymakers don't think, how much money do I have to spend and what should I prioritize it on? They think um, how much money, um, you know, how much money do I need to spend without regard to how much they have, and then they go spend it, and then they have deficits that um, central banks can print. So it's just like the same as individuals. They have the deficit, but but in their case, they have the capacity to print the money to pay the deficit. So um, it's not easy to fix the financial problem. Um, the internal problem, you know what it's like. Can you get people to come together? to you know, say this is a common problem. Let's have the left and the right and people. Very difficult. People have big differences in values and conditions. And so um, it's very difficult to bring them together to deal with the problems. And the same is true internationally, you know, easier said than done. So um, given that dynamic, there is then the stages. And so it's pretty clear normally what comes next. Given all of these changes, what do you think people can do to best prepare themselves financially for the next few years? Well, I think that um, in saving, um, let's, let's talk about that. Um, there is, I, I think of savings in tiers. The first tier is to secure your well-being, to own a portfolio of assets that are going to secure your well-being. And then after you have that taken care of, then you can go to the next level, take more risk and so on. Um, that well-being, that purchasing power has to be viewed in terms of inflation adjusted dollars. You know, if you're holding um, a debt instrument and, you know, a cash paying instrument and it gives you a 2% interest and you have a 5 or 6% inflation, you lose money at 3% a year. So you have to look at that in real dollars and you have to uh, hold that portfolio in a way uh, that is balanced to any kind of economic environment. And then the way I do it, and I, you know, I, I, I stood, I remember, you know, I didn't have anything. And then I start to acquire um, money and I start to think, okay, how much, how many weeks do I have, months do I have, or years that I'm financially safe and what do I hold it in? So, and then, you know, once you got that taken care of, you can go beyond it. And, um, and I wanted it in a very well-balanced portfolio, that, that type of portfolio that does equally well no matter what happens. Um, I can explain that a little bit more if you want. That'd be uh, good. Okay. Um, there are basically two big influences on markets. Um the growth rate and the inflation rate. Um, like if you know 
that um, growth is going to be faster than expected and inflation is going to be higher than expected. You know, you know that bonds are going to go down um, and vice versa. So the way I, um, I give that as an example, um, it, so the way I look at it is there are those two big influences and then they can, so I four environments and each one of them can go up or down. So there are four quadrants that I think of, rising growth, falling growth, rising inflation and falling inflation. And I want to have a portfolio that will be 25% of my risk in each one of those so that I don't have any bias. And so I pick the assets that are going to do well in each of those four quadrants and I hold them in a balanced way. And I've tested that, you know, going back actually to 1900 and so on. And you'll maintain, you'll actually increase your buying power. Um, and so it, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think in the beginning, then you have to also make provision for, you know, taxes to some extent. So I say, whatever that amount of money is, I want twice as that. So in case it goes in half and I want to build a portfolio that looks like that, um, for, you know, I don't know, X number of years that I have that and that's the safe savings. And then when I go beyond that, then I'll take more, uh, risk. But I think that being safe uh, particularly in this kind of an environment, uh, is important. And I would take a perspective of how to do that. That's, uh, like the one I'm just describing. What would be an example of an investment for each of those four quadrants? Well, I'm worried that we're going to take a long time to explain it. I've explained it uh, elsewhere, but l- let me give an example. Of, I'll, I'll take it. Um, like if growth, so there's these four quadrants, growth and inflation. If, if growth is less, expe- uh, less than expected and inflation's less than expected, you would like to own bonds. Okay, if it's higher than expected, you would n- not want to own bonds. Okay, if if inflation is higher than expected, you would want to own assets such as commodities and gold and inflation index bonds. Um, if growth is faster than expected, particularly if inflation is less than expected, you'd want to own stocks. So you get the idea. One of the things that you brought up earlier on was the uh, changing internal structure. This is driven by a number of factors, but one of them being uh, increasing wealth inequality. At the moment, it seems like there is a decline in praising work ethic, especially in the U.S., do you think that that is a symptom or a cause of what we're seeing at the moment? Well, I think the I'm referring to the let's say the wealth gap. Um, I think that there's um, a, a, it's a, there's a lot of um, particularly unproductive people 
um, for example, um, for various reasons, but I, I live in the state of Connecticut and my wife tries to help, um, students in the poorest neighborhoods that have the worst conditions. And I'll give you, um, this example. I, <clears throat> the state of Connecticut is usually number one, two or three in the richest state in the country, but 22% out of the last survey, it's actually higher than this. 22% of the high school students in Connecticut have either dropped out of high school or uh, have absentee rates of greater than 25% and are in failing classes. And there's a great deal of poverty um, and the breakup of the families and, and the guidance. There's a cycle um, that takes place. And so you're seeing um, the general competitive education levels, the con conditions. Um, in, the, in Connecticut, uh, so we operate philanthropically, and I'll give you an example. Um, there was COVID, and the kids have to get educated. And 60,000 kids uh, didn't have computers or connectivity. And no government was going to do anything about it. So, you know, we had to buy 60,000 computers to give it to kids in order for them to have education. Well, this, this and there's hunger and there's poverty and there's drugs. Um, I lit, it's, it's how the educational system is funded. Uh, um, education is a state issue by the Constitution. And then within a state, it's a tax typically within a state, it's a tax district issue. So I live in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is relatively, it's a, real, it's a rich uh, town. And the public education gets about $24,000 per student. Last number I looked, it's probably higher than that now. Gets $24,000 a student up uh, the road at Bridgeport, Connecticut, 10 minutes up the road, they get $14,000 a student because there's no tax base and um and they need it more they need more money because you know the expenses of raising a kid are are you also have to get them the computer you've got to get them the you know the food the clothes all of those things and they have less food less clothes all those things so um and well but in any case what you can see is the education test scores and measures of how we're doing in education relative to other countries uh, have declined. So part of it is uh, education and circumstances. Part of it is drugs. Part of it is, um, you know, there are lots of parts of it. And then there's um, a certain element of it, which uh, let's say because of COVID or other reasons, um, that people um, have moved around and, and say, you know, I don't have to work as hard anymore. So, you know, just for example, the change in the attitudes of restaurant workers, you know, okay, I can, I found another way to live and so on. And that's playing a role. Um, of course, also people um, um, as the baby boomers are older, um, you know, they drop out of it or they want to retire earlier and they do. So there are a number of factors that affect, um, you know, the, 
this kind of set of circumstances. The bit, the wealth gap is very much due to a self reinforcing cycle in which if you earn a lot of money, you can afford to take care of your kids' education. You can raise them in a better way. Um, if you don't earn a lot of money, you don't have that privilege. So, it, you know, it, so all through history, um, during those such times, wealth gaps have increased. So you look at the cycles, um, you have a new, you know, like a new world order, like in the 1850s, you know, you have the Civil War and then you have that. And then you have new technologies and inventing. You have the Industrial Revolution take place and things go great. But uh, what it does is it also increases the wealth gap. Some people make a lot of money, others don't. And it also increases the level of indebtedness. And you make the turn of the century, you, there's, then you see big conflicts over wealth. You have the um, panic of 1907. And so what you see is the Industrial Revolution turns into what's called the Gilded Age, in which there are very rich, decadent, um, you know, while there's poverty and, you know, in the early turn of the century, um, they're living, people are living very, very lavishly, very decadently at the same time as their, you know, sweatshops and all of that. And then there's kind of a revolutionary reaction to that. So these things happen over and over again for the same reasons. What would you tell young people then at the moment? What advice would you give them? Um, well, um, first of all, uh, learn, uh, learn how, uh, say a few things. First, know your nature. Everyone has a different nature, a way, a pull, what's their pull toward. Um, I created a, um, personality profile test called principles. You it's, I put it online for free and it tells you a lot about you know, what your nature is. And uh, it also shows if you, uh, if you take the test and you do and you put somebody else's in, they take the test, it'll tell you about your relationship. So you want to know what your nature is, what your pull is going for. And then you go through your journey of learning experiences that, um, you know, has its ups and downs. And, you know, you learn, you have your, uh, you know, your, your painful experiences, but um, I have a principle Pain plus reflection equals progress. You learn, you get that. And, um, and then to have perspective, to understand um, that all of these things, um, events transpire, uh, you know, know the whole cycle, see the whole thing, gain perspective, and understand where you are in the cycle. Understand where you are in the life cycle. There's a life cycle, Um you know, from birth to death, and let's say it on average, it lasts about 80 years. And you know that at different parts in that cycle, certain, th certain things are going to happen. You're going to, you know, um, first third of it, uh, you're going to be dependent on others and you're learning. Second third of it, 
Um, you're going to be independent of your parents and so on, and you're going to be, others will become dependent on you and you're working to be successful. At the various ages, you, you get married, you have kids, you uh, all of these cycles, there's a life cycle. That happens over and over again. And then there are these other cycles, these cycles of, um, you know, um, you, you know, let's call it almost from, from war to war, um, um, whether that's an internal war to changes the internal order or an external war changes the external order. And there's a cycle that has to do with a debt cycle and those others. And, um, and you, you, and you have to know what those cycles are like and kind of where you are in those cycles and you navigate it well. I mean, the main thing, you know, is being strong, smart, capable and adaptable. But um, that's why I put out <clears throat> these, um, you know, videos and books to try to help people understand that. You mentioned one of the common life landmarks that people get to is having kids and getting married at the moment, especially in the West, but also even more so in Asia, birth rates are falling through the floor. We've got 0.78, I think, in South Korea. We've got just around about one in Japan. China also looking really bad at the moment. What? How concerned are you about current population decline and future demographics? Well, it's a it's a it's a real burden, uh, and also depending on where it is, it's a a, a real burden um, because the young have to take care of the old. Um, so, let's say, for example, in China, um, with the one child policy, uh, a married couple has four old adults that they have to take care of. There's not an adequate social program. Um, and that takes, uh, time and money. Um, and it makes it, you know, a, a, a great burden makes productivity a problem. And so, um, you see, you know, like you say, you, you know, you see this, um, you know, that, that, that is a, these are burdens costs because the, with those who need taking care of, um, uh, and are not earning money. Uh, need um, you know those resources and it's and it's sapping. Um, you know, one hopes that productivity increases faster than this burden, and that. But then it you know, requires you you have to if you raise that you have to then divide the pie well. So it's a uh, yeah it's um, demographics is a burden. You are maybe alluding there to stuff like AI, uh, robot, uh, robotized workforces assisting in terms of getting more juice out of the smaller demographics that we do have and the potential gains of that accruing to a small number of people that own that organization. You need a, a relatively small group to be able to, I don't know how many people are in the open AI company, but something tells me it's a significantly smaller number than the amount of impact that it's had and is probably going to have. Right. So that's exactly right. So if you, if the society as a whole can do that, what it will do is it'll naturally make the people who, some people very rich and some people very poor, but it can raise productivity enough that um, 
it can raise living standards. Let's just imagine robots always work there and you don't have to have people in doing the jobs. Um, then what you can have, then what you have to deal with is how do you redistribute the wealth and opportunity? Because as I say, it'll be concentrated in some and others will lose jobs. And um, um, there's more productivity for the whole, but you have a, a distribution issue. Are you familiar with Nicholas Eberstadt? Do you know him? He wrote Men Without Work. No. He came on the show. He came on the show last week. I think he'd be really interested. The book's very, very short. Uh, and he, he's discovered this odd cohort of men that are lurking inside of the unemployment statistics. There's 7 million men aged 22 to 55 in the US who aren't working and aren't looking for work. Only 10% of that number are students. From the remaining 6.7 million, about 2,000 hours is the average amount of time that they spend watching screens. And 50% of that time on average is spent whilst on either prescription medication or weed, recreational drugs. And two-thirds of those men are living in homes that claim at least one disability benefit. So basically lurking inside of the low unemployment numbers is this cohort of prime working age men who don't have a job and don't want a job either. One, right. of, one of the potential downstream implications for that is what does this mean for universal basic income? That if these men are able to be supported by social welfare, but they're not, they're not going out and enacting poetry, staring up at the stars, you know, speaking their truth forward and uh, dealing with the existential pain of living in a good way, this doesn't seem like they're flourishing particularly. And given the automation that's potentially coming down the pike, I wonder what that means. Well, I think you paint, um, or he paints, an accurate picture. And obviously, it's not good, you know. Um, my, as my wife was describing when she was uh, dealing with uh, that population, now it's very common for kids to come to school high. And, you know, then they have... What, what ages? Oh, young ages, you know, 10. Wow. Okay. Well, marijuana is readily available. And um, so, yeah, we have a number of these issues. We've brought China up a couple of times. And I think based on what I know about your work, the conflict between the USA and China uh, as China, the ascending new power that may be overtaking the USA. However, we do have this perhaps uh, unprecedented demographic collapse that China's facing. The best predictions that I've seen suggest that it's going to go from about 1.1 to 1.2 billion now to about 650 to 700 million by 2050. So it's pretty much getting chopped in half. Does that uh, change the way that... Uh, the world orders change moving forward? Uh, I think the main thing with China right now is, um, you know, we're on the brink of war with uh, China for various reasons. Um, you know, like, um, I hope we make it to 2050. Um, so, um, yeah, the demographics as is as I describe it. Um, and by the way, them losing doesn't make us winning. Um, just so we're look, look at that, you know, we hope everyone gets better. Um, 
and the world economy. We hope everybody has a better way. Um, nobody, everybody loses in wars. And so, um, you know, that's their set of circumstances and it'll be what it'll be. I think the most important thing is how do we deal with our circumstances? You know, how do we become strong and healthy, financially healthy, health, productivity healthy, and so on? So, um, yeah, the, we could talk about the demographic problem in, in China, um, which is just what we talked about before in terms of, you know, does robotics and productivity and all that make up for that? I don't know. But um, I really think we're projecting too much on the outside world. Okay, what do we do with China? What Of what relevance? Well, we trade with China. We don't have to go to a military war with China. I mean, let's, why would we, we shouldn't do that, um, you, you know. Um, and, um, and then if that's the case, you know, what's the problem with them growing? You know, okay, but there's not, it's not very much, you know, okay, let them grow and invent and let us grow and invent and share the inventions. That would be good. Um, but the problems that we're facing are pretty much our own problems, the things we're talking about and the breakdown of infrastructure and, you know, all of that. So really, um, I think we should focus on that and, you know, maybe their demographic, demographics is a big burden or not. You know, they have other big burdens too. We all do. But let's focus on how we can be as good as we can be. Yeah, as opposed to presuming that this zero-sum game is China finds life harder, therefore America finds life easier. That's yeah, not that, that, that doesn't work. Yeah, I understand. Um, you might have seen the Restrict Act, which was brought up recently. It's uh, lining up a potential ban for different types of online services, and it seems like one of the potential bases for banning TikTok from America, which, again, to me, just... Um, further embeds this them and us, China is enemy. If we can remove that influence from the West as much as possible, then we are going to end up in a better situation. Well, that's the dynamic, yes. What do you think about the Fed's messaging about this soft landing thing? Is that possible? Like Historically, I don't think it's it's really happened, but do they have enough control over the economy to be able to make this work? The big issue is that um, a lot of debt was created. A lot of it is government debt, but it is also corporate, to a lesser extent, household debt. Um, uh, um, so um, if you look at the Silicon Valley, Valley Bank issue, um, it's not so much their issue as much as a worldwide issue. And what happened is that, you know, what's a bank? A bank takes in deposits um, and then it takes that money and it invests it in things. And so they bought a lot of government bonds that had a higher yield than they were paying out in the deposits. There's a tightness of monetary policy and those yields went up and the bonds went down in value. And then the amount they have to pay out went up in value. And so uh, they went broke. 
And um, that is happening all over. Um, that happens not only through banks, banks as a whole did a lot of that, but um, insurance companies and so on all around the world. Same sort of thing happened in Europe. Same sort of thing happened with Japanese uh, companies even buying U.S. dollar bonds uh, a lot. And um, and so you have, um, if you were to mark those to market, you would have a, a, a terrible calamity. Um, but what's going to likely happen is they don't want any more of those bonds. And we're going to have to sell more bonds because we're going to have a deficit. So when you have a deficit, you have to pay for it through selling debt. And there's a lesser demand for that debt. And um, I think that that creates, um, you know, a problem in which either interest rates go up or the Federal Reserve's got to come in and print. And this is a problem that exists also in Europe with the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, all of them. So that's where that's where we are. Um, and it has knock-on effects. It's like dominoes that fall. So it will produce less credit. And as it produces less credit, less, less demand, less, less credit, that'll produce less spending. It'll come in certain parts of the economy. For example, commercial real estate. Um, for example, um, venture capital and private equity. Uh, for example, um, low grade. Uh, bonds where they have a heavily indebted con company and the interest rate goes up a lot and that causes problems. So I think you're in the part of the cycle where you've had the tightening and then the dominoes are beginning to fall. And I think that that's going to produce uh, more, uh, more problems. So I think when it comes down to it, there's just too much debt and, and we're adding it to it too quickly. And so it's going to um, either that debt will be paid off with hard money, in which case there's not much printing and so on, or it'll be paid off with um, printing a lot of money to make it easier to pay off. I think in the end, it'll, it's always the case that they print a lot of money and, and make it easier to pay off, but you have the reduced value of money. So that's how it looks to me. You'll have probably a stagflation environment. And because you have that dynamic going on at the same time as you have supply chain disruptions because of the geopolitical, um, I think it's going to be a difficult environment. Let's say that we do hit quite an aggressive recession. What are some of the ways that people could even look to benefit financially from that happening are there any things that individuals can do um the most important thing as i say is to have this basic well diversified and you know there's some assets and and think about different you know a small percentage of your money even in asset like gold or or and diversification for countries, you know, to just to create a diversified portfolio is important. One of the things that did occur, you mentioned uh, Silicon Valley Bank there, there was a big 
bump in terms of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies around about that time. And it seemed like one of the first periods where people genuinely saw crypto as a store of value, as a way to just, I, I need to put my money somewhere that I feel is safe. And given the last 18 months of what's happened with crypto, considering that as that's the place I'm going to store my assets in order for it to be safe, I think said quite a lot about how people sort of perceived the state of the dollar and the security of banks and stuff at the moment. What What's the role of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in a, a, the current economy in your, in your eyes? Um, I think um, <clears throat> cryptocurrency or Bitcoin um, doesn't move in a reliable way related to almost anything. It's, uh, you know, moves up and down because of um, this mood and that move and mood. Um, and um, unlike gold, let's say, I, I would prefer gold and, and I would prefer crypto for various reasons. Crypto, um, it, it's very easy to track the owners and transactions in it. It's not liked by the government. Um, it's, um, it, 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 it doesn't move in a way that's consistent with, you know, kind of any of the environments and it's a fairly, and it's a small asset class. Um, you know, we talk a lot more about it, but its size is about, you know, 30% of the size of Microsoft and Microsoft is one stock among many stocks. So, uh, it's given um, probably a lot more attention. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, who, who knows, maybe, you know, there's some element of it. I don't understand why people are more inclined to go to Bitcoin than gold. Um, if you look internationally, um, gold is, uh, for central banks, the third highest reserve asset. First is dollars, then euros, then gold, then uh, Japanese yen. Um, and central bankers are buying gold and they're not buying um, bonds. And um, and so, and it's, you know, timeless and universal. It's been there. So, um, but, um, you know, um, so I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it. As I've said before, um, you know, having a little bit, I have a little bit of it, but if you have a little bit of it, you have to um, think about the, those things and, you know, like I said, you know, you have to be prepared for it to fall a lot, you know, if, if it goes down 80% or something, but that limits the amount that you can have in it. So I don't know. It's, um, I don't think a lot of Bitcoin. I think what's interesting there is holding crypto essentially has a cognitive load on you, using it as uh, somewhere that you're using for investment as a store of value to just put assets that you've got it's almost that there is a price that you pay because of the volatility, but the price that you pay is with your own sanity with regards to that, um, which is something that I hadn't quite considered. There are uh, less sanity sapping uh, forms of investment. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to do it. I mean, I've seen so many people, you know, I've seen people get very rich and I've seen get, people get very broke with it. I have friends um, in both camps, yeah. So, you know, we've spoken about today this very quickly changing, highly volatile environment that we're in, whether that be socioculturally, politically, globally, locally, financially. 
where should people go in order to find um, some solace in this, given the fact that it is difficult? It's difficult to exist in this world. Um, go to go to places or spend time where there's not as much of this junk going on. You know, um, I mean, first of all, I think recognize. Let's let's go to some of the basics. Um, what do you really need? Um, you, you know, you need a bed to sleep in. You need food to eat. Um, um, most depressions, most people remain employed. Most wars, most people don't get die or get in, injured. Um, uh, so. Um, you know, let's put, let's calm down and put all this in place. But let's be in places where there's, um, you know, goodness and harmony and beauty. You know, maybe you spend more time in nature or, you know, you go out there and, um, I'd like to meditate. Meditate is, meditation has had a big effect on me. So, um, yeah, um, don't get all stressed about it you know, navigate it well, um, and, you know, enjoy life, enjoy those things. And I think that that's, you know, that, I think that's most important. What would you say to the people that say, how am I expected to enjoy life when there's all of this chaos going on? There's so many bad news stories and headlines. And what about the financial collapse? Well, um, first of all, if it's really having that impact on you don't get so hung up on the financial stories and you know don't don't watch the television or something you know go out for a nice walk and <laughs> in the nature like all that story you don't really need all that story okay now what's going to happen to you like i say um you know don't get so hung up on expectations of having the most amount of money or whatever just you know think about it um, like I say, where wh will you lose where you live? Will you, you know, um, what matters, you know, uh, your friends, your family, your, um, you know, give a bed to a good bed to sleep in for adequate food, right out into nature, you know, like I, I think my own view is sometimes, you know, like the most luxurious thing I can do is take a tent and be out in a beautiful spot. You know, um, so, um, you know, don't avoid it, uh, you know, don't, don't get stressed out, you know, understand it, be prepared. Redefining success and what happiness means and what we should be aiming for in life, I think is a, a very worthwhile pursuit. Right. I'll, I'll tell you, um, this idea of success being uh, measured in the amount of money and status you have is really screwed up. Um, um, like if you think about money, and, and this is uh, shown in measures of happiness, um, past a basic amount of money so that you don't have uh, the misery, there is no correlation between the level of money you have and the level of happiness you have. Lots of studies show that. And the highest correlation 
is do you have a community? Um, that's the highest source of um, happiness and also it, longevity. It has a big effect on longevity, stress. More than smoking, more than stopping alcohol, more than going to the gym and exercising. Right, right. And so, uh, and then you think like, what is money for? It has no intrinsic value. It only has a value of what it buys. And so um, it has a limited marginal ability, you benefit, you, you add more and more to it. And, you know, like, what are you going to do? Okay, so you're going to get a bigger house or a bigger car or what, what you know, okay. Um, and what does that really mean incrementally, relative to spending time with friends and family and all of those things? You know, most of the good things in life are not expensive, right? Um, friends, family, uh, nature, sex, anything, you know, it's not going to get better with more money, right? Materially better. And so um, it seems to me that um, it then can become an obsession. Um, and that's not healthy. So I think it's, you know, by and large, you handle it well, and it's all going to be okay. Um, it's all going to be okay. Ray Dalio, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the work that you're doing, where should they go? Um, my more lengthy writings are on LinkedIn, but I'm on all of the social media. So um, in various ways, and, and when, if I write something that's longer, um, it, I'll, it'll be linked to uh, LinkedIn. So, you know, all the major social media I'm on. Ray, I really appreciate you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your time. <laughs>